Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, December 11th, 2022, we continue our Advent series with a sermon titled Sovereignty and Submission by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Matthew chapter 1. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. Why this prophecy? Why this prophecy of hope to such a wicked, wicked king? I think it's because Ahaz is typical of all humanity. Do we take opportunities to trust in ourselves rather than what God wants? Do we feel like we're in the midst of a battle, uncertain of what the future might hold? Do we find it difficult to be at peace with others and maybe at peace with God? See, when we place our faith in the person of Jesus Christ and believe that he died a sacrificial death on our behalf because of our sin, we become a child of God. And he becomes our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. I pray that you know him this morning. This is an interesting story. And I think that, you know, most of us, have, of course, have heard it over our life. Um, I'm probably not going to deliver it the same way that historically it gets delivered because as I got into studying it and looking deeper into it, there is just so, so much more. And this is truly, in, in our context today, is a story about 42 men, five women, and one baby. We're not going to cover all 42 men. But I can tell you in those 42 men, 41 of them are fathers and one of them is a dad. I think it's important for us to understand Christmas is about celebrating the incarnation where the God of this universe came to this earth as a child, as a baby. Jesus is that incarnation. This genealogy that we're going to look at today and his lineage is his family. And it took every one of them to fulfill the prophecy and the law of the prophets to come to reveal the God-man. I think about it in the terms of sovereignty, where the sovereign God of this universe came to dwell among us. But also attached to it is this concept of submission. I can't imagine the God of this universe submitting himself to people, to being born. It reminds me of a meme that has been going around ever since Queen Elizabeth uh, passed away. The meme, of course, gives credit to Queen Elizabeth. Uh, the reality of it is, is that it's actually accredited to Queen Victoria. The story is, comes from, if you really want to know, it's on page 171 of the book Crowned uh, to Serve. This book was written by Dean Farrar. Dean Farrar was the honorary chaplain to Queen Victoria. Um, this is in the period of time in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. But in this, um, Frederick Farrar quotes a story about Queen Victoria. And it was after a sermon, and the queen came and spoke with him on the topic that he had chosen, which was the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And she asked him specifically, oh, how I wish that the Lord might come during my own lifetime. He responded, why does your majesty feel this earnest desire? 
She replied with quivering lips and her whole countenance lighted by deep emotion. And she said, I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. This, of course, is an anecdotal story that illustrates the feelings of Queen Victoria's mind. But after this recent loss of Queen Elizabeth, we saw this uproar, we saw this this encouragement of people who were basically this outpouring uh, for the, the Queen of England, even though we as a nation ourselves separated ourselves from the monarchy quite some time ago. But yet there was this great reverence. I remember as we were going through that kind of societal reverence, this outpouring of affection for the queen illustrated to me how we yearn for a faithful and a dependable sovereign. I would encourage us never to look to an earthly queen or king, but simply to look to Jesus Christ alone, for he is our sovereign king that we would be fully satisfied in that longing because we know based upon his word of his kingdom, there will be no end. If we desire that of a sovereign in our lives, then that sovereignty is in the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, amen? Let me pray before we jump into this word. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for sending us your son, our sovereign king. Help us, Lord, to grow in this grace. Help us to grow in a better and better understanding of the God-man. Fill us with your grace and mercy to your glory. Amen. If I'm being truthful, I I, I have to admit, I don't typically like uh, genealogies. Uh, I'm sure many can relate, not all of you, but many can relate, because I change all their names, right? As I'm reading it, they become Jerry and Larry, and you know, because and, and, I can't pronounce most of their names. But I want us to understand that this genealogy is important. It's important for us to understand. It's important for us to understand God's word, because virtually every name in this list reveals some sort of lesson about God's grace. And together they clearly show us how important God's grace went from generation to generation, from the very beginning of time. This list today is hardly the entirety of the list, but it isolates or pulls out of it, in fact, people that are significant in these different periods or seasons of time. In Genesis, we would have called them toldots. These are generational uh, divisions of time. But what's important about these generations is that God nurtured and he protected the lineage he had predetermined that would give birth to the Messiah. I think if there was anything, if I could put it in a contemporary sense, Maybe some are not old enough to know who these people are, but the family of Jesus Christ reminds me of the modern-day Clampets. 
there's a bit of hillbilly here, and there is a period of time that they became proverbial millionaires. But most of Jesus' life was spent in abject poverty before Jed became a millionaire. But why do genealogies, in fact, matter? They matter because they not only do they trace the royal line of Israel, but they also outline God's dealings with his people. They reveal how God's sovereign hand has ordered human events to fulfill his own purposes, despite the tremendous obstacles created by our wickedness. Mankind's worst sin, his rebellion, his treachery, have utterly failed to thwart the grace of God's plan. And I can't say that they didn't go down trying, whether they knew it or not. The second aspect is that genealogies had other practical uses in the Old Testament. Especially in Israel, they were often essential for conducting important business transactions. The way that you proved that you owned a piece of land was based upon your genealogy, that you were in fact the son of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so, representing that that property was passed down from generation to generation. In fact, also the entire priesthood of Israel, the entire depended upon genealogies. All of Israel's priests had to be a descendant of Levi. You had to to become a priest. You couldn't just apply for the job. You had to show that you were, in fact, from that lineage. And for all those reasons, the genealogies were carefully recorded and guarded. And the more important ones were, in fact, encapsulated in the books of Scripture, in the 66 books of God's Word. But, in fact... When we look at it, the New Testament begins, when it begins, we find Joseph and Mary going up to be registered according to their own ancestry, a census, where they had to go to Bethlehem, which of course is where our Savior was born, fulfilling the prophecy of God's word, their ancestral home. The lineage of Judah's kings. In fact, to become king of Israel, you had to come from the line of Judah. God's promise was that David's offspring would bring forth the one, right, who would deliver Israel and would reign as king everlasting. You can imagine as time went on, is this the king? Is this the everlasting king? The constant reminder because of Isaiah's prophecy, is this the one? Is this the one? But when we look at that lineage and speaking through the prophet Nathan, God promised David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, he says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. It's never going away. And your throne shall be established forever. The monarchy will never end. You see, what this meant was that any claimant, any person claiming to the throne of Israel had to demonstrate genealogically that he descended from David and that he was in the line of royalty. 
You had to be in the specific line of royalty. I know that if I go to Ancestry.com, I probably find something, I haven't done this, so I'm just making this up, right? I finally find that I'm the second cousin nine times removed from George Washington. That doesn't put me in the line of the presidency. (laughs) Scripture records these things as infallible. They record these things as authoritative so that we understand the lineage and the truth and the accuracy of God's word. But in our text today, it's gonna deal with two genealogies and it's gonna deal with two prophecies. The two final genealogies in scripture both trace the lineage of Jesus. And they come in the gospels, the canonical gospels, right? So if we understand that most of the gospels are repeating the same story just from a slightly different angle. But in this case, Matthew and Luke are recording the same story. Matthew 1, in chapter one is going to talk about something very specific. But the same story in Luke chapter three, verses 23 through 38, seems like it's different. Matthew, of course, starts with Abraham in the genealogy and follows the line through David to Jesus via Joseph's family. And what's interesting, in Luke, Luke starts with Jesus and outlines the genealogy of Mary's family back through David, and then, of course, all the way back to Adam. It should probably note that Matthew doesn't refer to Joseph as Joseph the father. He refers to, refer to Joseph specifically, but it refers to him as Joseph the father of Jesus. This is interesting. But it refers to him as the husband of Mary. That Joseph is the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, Matthew 1.16. Scripture is clear that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. In fact, God was. And because Jesus had no human father, he couldn't be a descendant of David except through his mother, This is an important point. The legal right to rule always came from the father's side. It didn't come from the mother's side. And this was true even in Jesus' case. If he were in fact the biological son of Joseph. But because Joseph adopted Jesus as his son... He gained all the rights of Joseph and his lineage, but none of the curse. I'll explain that as we get into this. Luke shows that through Mary, Jesus was literally a blood descendant of David. While Matthew proves that through his adopted father, Joseph, Jesus was legally in the royal line, although not biologically Joseph's. In every possible way, he had the right to rule. I'll explain the complexity of this because of the two prophecies. Jesus' ancestry was an elegant solution to probably one of the most troubling dilemmas of the Old Testament. You see, God had cursed the royal line. In Jeremiah 22:30, right? This is where we record God's judgment on Jacona who I like to call Jerry. (laughs) 
But Jeconah, he was also known as, uh, as Coniah, and also, uh, I won't even pronounce that one, Jerry. So, here's what it says in Jeremiah 22.30. And he's talking about this king, Jeconah. This king, Jeconah of Judah, right? Thus says the Lord, write this down, write this man down as childless. A man who shall not succeed in his days or none of his offspring. Not one, none of his offspring. Shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. It's a powerful curse. So how is the Messiah gonna come through the lineage and the line of David? If Jeconah has no sons, then the biological royal line ceases to exist. But in this context, it does not mean that Jeconah would actually be childless, but rather that the effects of the curse would nullify the birthright. The lineage of the king would come to an end. His children, Jeconah's children, would not be his heirs. And his right to rule, as well as all the other privileges of the royal birthright, were permanently taken from him and his descendants. The royal line was, in essence, terminated. And Jeconah had been childless, or been counted as childless. You see, because we see in Matthew 1, verses 11 and 12, where it says, and Josiah, the father of Jeconah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconah was the father to Shealtiel. He had a son, but that son would not be king. You see, God meant specific business here. Jeconah was indeed the last king in the Davidic line. He was succeeded on the throne of David, not by his son, but by his uncle Zedekiah in 2 Kings 24, 17. You see, Zedekiah's reign marked the end of Judah as a kingdom, and so Jeremiah's prophecy was literally fulfilled in that movement. Not one of Jeconah's sons or any of their descendants ever again returned to the throne, and it was a sad ending to this Davidic dynasty. You see, Jeremiah's prophecy seems at first to be a glaring contradiction in the messianic, this Messiah promise. The Messiah was to be in the royal line of David. Yet that line was effectively ended with Jeconah. How would these two equally inspired, infallible prophecies both be fulfilled? The Messiah had to come from the royal lineage of David and thus be a descendant of Jeconah. But how could he ever rule as a king without violating the prophecy that no descendant of Jeconah would ever reign? Here's the fact. If Jesus had been the literal son of Joseph, born of his seed, he never could lay claim to the throne of David. He would be under the curse, and yet because, of, because he was still the legal son of Jesus, he inherited the right to rule. For he was not under the curse that was passed down from everyone born in the royal line. 
because he came from the seed of God, not from the seed of man. God's sovereign orchestration of these events to bring his son into the world is incredible. But it doesn't end there. Consider how God wove sinners and outcasts and people that were considered unclean into the Lord's lineage as further illustration of his incredible grace. For that, I want to look at five women. The first one is Tamar. She's mentioned in this genealogy. It's important for us to understand who Tamar was. Tamar was the wife of Ur. Ur was struck dead by God because God considered him to be an evil and wicked man. And so in that, her father-in-law, this guy named Judah, wanted to follow the customs of the land, which was that the lineage of Judah needed to go forward. So Judah offered his second son, Onan, to be with Tamar. And when he was with Tamar, he did something that was despicable. He didn't give her his seed, and therefore he wasn't participating in the passing down of the lineage. And when God saw what he had done, God struck him dead. There was a third son, and Judah was supposed to take the third son and have him be with Tamar, but at the time, he was a very young boy. So as time went on and on, Tamar kept waiting for this third son. But in fact, Judah kept hiding him from her. So Tamar took it into her own hands, like many of us do. In this case, she disguised herself as a prostitute, wearing a burqa she stood outside the gate where she knew that Judah would be. And Judah fell to his own temptation, his own lust, and he solicited her as a prostitute, and when he laid with her, he impregnated her. And truly, what she did for evil, God meant for good. Because from her, as the lineage of Judah, came Perez. It's to understand that God's grace and his control of his sovereign plan is always at hand. God is the one who's in control of our lives. How about Rahab? She was um, Solomon, the father of Boaz, right? Who was uh, mother of Rahab. Rahab was known as a harlot. She, of course, was a Canaanite. She wasn't an Israelite. The Canaanites were a hated enemy of Israel. But this incredibly remarkable deed that Rahab was actually doing was telling a lie. She lied to protect two spies of Joshua. You wouldn't think that she would have much chance of making the list of renowned biblical characters, but there she is. How about Ruth? We all love the story of Ruth. It's a wonderful romantic story. But Ruth was, of course, the daughter-in-law to Naomi. And as all the men had died on that side of the family, she decided to follow Ruth, or Ruth decided to follow Naomi and worship her God. And of course, Naomi had matched her up with Boaz. She wanted Boaz to be his kinsman redeemer, but yet in the lineage, in the line, Boaz wasn't supposed to be the kinsman redeemer. But in fact, she, she told uh, Ruth how to go and, 
gain the attention of Boaz. And then Boaz went and fought with the elders to make sure that he was the next in line rather than the other guy. He had to get the other guy to say that I'm not interested. But in God's work there, Ruth, of course, came to Boaz and continued the lineage in the line of David. How about Bathsheba, daughter of Sheba, as she's known? She was listed in this scripture as the wife of Uriah the Hittite and later of David. We know the story of this. David, in his kingship, standing upon his platform, sees a beautiful, naked Bathsheba bathing in her own yard, which was custom. It was hidden. But with his view from his kingship, he was able to see everything. And of course, he summoned his guards to go and get her and bring her to him. Now, I don't know whether or not David forced himself on him or put her in a very awkward position because she's standing before the king. But nonetheless, she became impregnated. And we know that David's response to this ultimately was that he would kill or withdraw the troops from her husband Uriah and simply make her his wife. These don't seem like the kindest, most gracious people that we call family let alone the lineage that leads to the king of kings. But Mary, in Matthew, it doesn't really refer to Mary. It indirectly states Joseph, the husband of Mary. She is, in fact, the biological mother of Jesus, and this is an important distinction. We'll get to that here shortly, I promise you. But as we get into the generational plan and the revelation of the Messiah, in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. I want us to focus on this coming true, right? This, this fulfillment of prophecy. Pastor Ed spoke last week on Isaiah 9 in the promise of the Messiah to come. And he quotes it even here in verse 23 when he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall uh, call his name Emmanuel, God with us. But point one here is that God submitted himself to childbirth. God submitted himself to childbirth. The king of kings, the Lord, the creator of everything, submitted him to this very process of childbirth. It's probably one of the great wonders of Christmas that Christ, the son of God, did not just become a human, but he became a baby as physically small and helpless and needy as probably certainly, I, you know, I had four girls, so I never had uh, a, a son, but I have, I have these two great grandsons, and I can't imagine taking those little birthed babies and thinking for one second, I'm holding the king of kings, the creator of everything. But as it says in Luke 2, 7, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. I love this quote from Marshall Siegel who said, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, all in such a small seven or eight pound package. Imagine holding the savior of the universe with infinite power, wisdom, love, and mercy, and you're just one arm rocking him back and forth to go to sleep. You see, any of us can cradle a newborn, 
and get that similar sensation. But witnessing the birth of a child, painful and fragile, mysterious and miraculous, makes it all so much more incredibly spectacular. You think about the long months of pregnancy, the difficult hours of labor, the agonizing minutes of pushing. You see, this preaches the gospel with fresh depth and clarity. Some three decades before Jesus even endured the cross, he endured the birth canal. Long before he was delivered from the tomb, he was delivered from the womb. And he was lifted up for his mom and dad to see for that very first time the newborn who would secure the way of countless, countless second births. It's Point two is to understand that his birth revealed the prophecy as accurate. He brought the prophecy to light. They've been wandering around for 700 years wondering how is it possible that we'll ever have an earthly king? How is it possible that we would ever see another king of Judah? How would it possibly be because it ended with Jeconah? And here he is. You see, Isaiah himself, right, he, he had to feel difficulty in this. But as we, as we hear this message every December about the manger, the stable, and all the animals, let me ask this question, but what, what if Jesus would have come today if he'd been born in a brand new neonatal center or some other nearby hospital what if there had been plenty of room at the Hampton Inn? The drama of that night with nowhere to have a baby is significant and precious. But as we set up our manger scenes year after year, are we looking past the best part of the story? God became man. Think about that. You see, that's the story. Even more, God came as a baby. God came tiny, helpless, fully dependent. He could have been welcomed into the finest of palaces with the most advanced technology of the day. He could have been ushered into the greatest comfort and luxury and still would have been the biggest dissension from heaven as king to earth as an infant that the world has ever known. It still would have been the birth that revealed prophecy, announcing a new kingdom and promising a day when even the heavens and the earth would be born again. There would be new, a new kingdom. There would be a new covenant. But thirdly, I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus was born a king. He didn't work to become one because he's from that lineage. I can't imagine what Isaiah must have felt when he started presenting this concept to his, his people and his peers that I'm talking about baby God. They must have thought he was crazy. But when he wrote about the divine king who would come to save his people from all their sins and all their enemies, he wrote this, 
to us a child is born, to us a son is given, Isaiah 9, 6. He could have said a savior has emerged. He could have said a king has come. But what God was revealing was that our Messiah would be born a baby, that he would be born in such submission and humility. How much does an infant depend upon its parent for changing, for food, for a tender, loving caress? You see, the reality should have sent a tsunami through everything Isaiah and his hearers had known about God in the world. This God who, who rules, who has made and upholds the universe would now come down into this world, not as the highest, not as the strongest, not as the most powerful, but as the smallest, the weakest, the most obscure. God was coming not in the clouds, but in swaddling cloths. He was the fullness of divinity in a diaper. It is, in fact, John 1.14 that reminds us that the word, who is Jesus, became flesh and he dwelt among us. On the moment of his first breath, that moment of that first breath, the cord has been cut. And all the human biology is taking place. And in the moment of that first breath, he is king. Nothing else. He's king. I can't even imagine that. He has majesty and he is Lord of all. I know that from this, right, that Jesus was born in probably a less than ideal circumstance in an unimaginable filth and and germs by our modern Western standards and preferences, right? And he was born. That truth alone carries its own mystery and wonder without any added drama. You can talk about all the drama of the manger and the inconvenience and the difficulties, but don't miss the point. This is our king. God incarnate as a little tiny baby. You see, when God came to save those who had sinned against him, he didn't ride in on a powerful horse. But in the arms of those he came to save. Such humility, such submission. He was adopted by his earthly father. You see, there were 41 fathers listed there. But let me tell you, there was only one dad who adopted this boy. Think about that. Think about the symbiotic relationship between that because Joseph adopted Jesus as his son and put him in the lineage of kingship. So shall you be adopted by God the Father if you would put your faith in him. Such humility. I can't imagine the God of this universe submitting himself as infants in our own faith, 
Will we humble ourselves to trust the prophecy and the plan and the purpose of God regardless of our family, our upbringing? Will you trust the dysfunction that lists within your own families as God's prophecy and plan and purpose? Will you look at your family, your friends, and strangers alike, for God is the one who's in complete control. He's proven this through generation to generation, and he has shown us that nothing, nothing will thwart his hand. His purpose, his plan is always going to be done. We must recognize that we love because he first loved us. You know, we sang right before we came into this message, and I just want to apply it in its context. If, if the God of the universe submitted to humanity, so will I. Out of a reverent awe of this God who's in control of everything. Paul even tells us in Ephesians 5.21, he tells us, submit to one another. Submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. You see, the harmony with God comes at the price of mutual submission. Out of a reverent awe of the creator of the universe who came to this earth as a baby. This Christmas season, I encourage you to encounter your estranged family members. Stop searching and pretending that there's such a thing as a functional family. Everyone's dysfunctional, including our Savior's family. But find yourself submitting to the family of God that he planned for you and the family that you have and do this out of a reverent awe of this Christ. Jesus came in humility. He submitted himself to the very people he created. Why? As we're about to sing, to fulfill the law of the prophets, to a virgin came the word. And that word, right, it became flesh and it dwelt among us from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. Why? To reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost. He did not come to aspire to be king, work his way into the role. He came as the king of kings. And he came to redeem the whole of creation. He even didn't despise a cross. And on the morning that he rose from the dead, all of heaven held its breath until that stone was removed for good, for the lamb had conquered death. Be adopted by his father. As king, as the king of kings, he would not only come in humility in birth, but he would sacrifice him very self so that you could be saved adopted by our heavenly father. You see, in this moment, the father to the father we are restored, adopted. And in this moment, the church of Christ was born. And then the Holy Spirit lit the flame. And now this gospel truth of old, from the very beginning, this gospel truth will not kneel. It will not faint. But brothers and sisters, you need to look to Jesus and live. If your hope and your trust isn't in him as Messiah, I want you to know that the gospel won't kneel and it won't fail. But trust me on this, every knee will bow 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of Kings. Come in a seven or an eight pound package to set you free if you would put your faith and your trust in him. This Christmas, call your friends, call your family, call your colleagues, call them to come to Christmas Eve. Do not let them go another day without hearing the truth of the gospel so that they can be adopted by their heavenly father and set free the way that you are. Amen? Amen. To God be the glory. Let's stand, let's worship this God wholeheartedly. Let's sing all this praise, not to ourselves or to each other, but let's glorify him. Praise forever, the king of kings. What an incredible story. Today, don't forget to grab one of those uh, uh, little pieces about uh, how God has just blessed us this last year, just as a good recap. And even if, if today Christ has become real to you, I know that we have some next step packages where if you would so graciously come down and and just pray with any of our prayer warriors down here we would love to pray with you if you need any prayer or praise or anything going on we are here to love you with the gospel of christ please let us do that our father and our god lord we thank you praise you for you are the king of kings you've always been You are the everlasting king. Help us, Lord, to glorify you in each moment we're entrusted to give all praise and all glory to this triune God, to this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, Lord. Praise forever be to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 I love you guys. Minister to one another. See you next week.